Welcome everybody to episode 10 of Unleashed, the fastest hour on the internet. I promise I looked it up where we're bringing world-class thought leaders live to you every single Thursday. I'm your host, Jeff Tetz, CEO of Results. And here's a bit of a harsh reality for us. Most teams fall well short of their potential, but they're capable of of achieving so much more. And we started our business to solve this problem. We work alongside leaders to create high-performing teams and ultimately cultures that win. Thank you to everybody who's joining us today. This show is really made for anyone who has a growth mindset. And as a small token of our appreciation for you joining us today, we will be giving away some copies of Michael Lombardi's latest book, Great Iron Genius. It's a phenomenal, phenomenal book. All you need to do for a chance to win your very own copy is fill out the feedback form at the end of the show. So when you leave the meeting, when, that, when today is over, make sure you click the continue button and that will take you to the feedback form where you'll be entered automatically into a draw for Michael's book. And if you're a leader that's looking to further your own development, we offer a four part series called the leader's toolkit. It's limited to 12 people. I'll have more information on that at the end of the show and you'll have an opportunity at a preferred price based on your attendance today to register for that four part series. Now it might not make you ready to coach in the Super Bowl, but this four part series will certainly get you started. Uh, if you like what you see today, the biggest way that you can help us, and people are always asking, you know, what, what can we do to get more involved? Well, it's pretty simple. You can just help grow the audience and help grow our community. So anything that you learn today, any takeaways, any actions that you might commit to as, an, as a result of today's conversation, just simply post those to social media and use the hashtag results unleashed. And we may have a chance to get into the Q&A box today. So if you have some questions for Michael, please post them in the special Q&A section at the bottom of your screen. And if we don't get to your questions or you may have more input or feedback or some stories to share with us, you can email us anytime at info at unleashedresults.com. And I promise we'll get back to you promptly. And as a special sneak peek to next week, we're going to be joined by innovation and technology expert, Jim Harris, where we'll be discussing how to adapt your company in a digital age. So very timely, very important discussion. But more importantly, on with today's show. So I'm super excited to be joined today by special guest, Michael Lombardi, a native of Ocean City, New Jersey, and inspired by legendary Green Bay Packers head coach, Vince Lombardi, who coincidentally was born on this day in 1913. And the lyrics of Bruce Springsteen, some might say Michael Lombardi was destined for a life of greatness. He has worked alongside some of the most successful and influential minds to ever run NFL franchises with Bill Walsh, with the San Francisco 49ers, Al Davis of the Oakland Raiders, and of course, Bill Belichick, of the New England Patriots. Michael is a three-time Super Bowl champion and has held distinguished positions that include general manager of the Cleveland Browns. In his best-selling book, Gridiron Genius, Michael provides the blueprint that makes a successful organization click and win, and the mistakes that unsuccessful organizations make that keep them on the losing side time and time again. It's a revealing book and a, really, and a revealing look at what makes football organizations tick at the championship level. Credited with revolutionizing how coaches and players are evaluated, Michael has been described as a detail freak and a polymath, and high praise from Bill Belichick himself, who has called Michael one of the smartest people he's ever worked with. He writes a column for The Athletic, and he has his own top-rated podcast, The GM Shuffle, on the Cadence Podcast Network, and if that wasn't enough, his latest venture is called The Daily Coach. It's a daily newsletter filled with inspiration, wisdom, and action plans to help you tackle your day in partnership with another legendary coach and humanitarian, George Raveling. And we don't have time to really get into George today, but if we did, whoa, he's an amazing, amazing human being. So please look up George Raveling if you uh, have never come across him yet. He loves The Sopranos, The Godfather movies, and as previously mentioned, Bruce Springsteen. And a happy 61st birthday to Michael next Friday on the 19th. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you. I appreciate it, Jeff. It's awful nice of you. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. I, I am honored to, uh, to be in the same place Tom Peters once was because Tom has forever influenced my life. And uh, as I would drive Bill Walsh around in a car, Walsh had this great Porsche. 
and I got to drive them around. This is 1984, and there was no cell phones. There was no satellite radio. So all there was was he and I in the car, and he would ask me questions. And one of them was, do you know who Tom Peters is? And I wasn't sure. I thought it was a punter from North Dakota. And <laughs> he launched into this whole dissertation about why I should go to the Stanford Bookshore immediately and uh, buy In Search of Excellence by Tom Peters and Bob Waterman. And I did, and my life was ever changed. Yeah, you're not alone. You're uh, you're definitely in good company. And he has he's had a big influence on our business, and and not just the way that we run our own business, but the things that we actually help other companies implement. So yeah, it's neat to see these little connections. Uh, people are so far away and live different lives, but uh, the more we have been talking to people like Tom Peters and talking to you, Michael, the smaller the world feels all the yeah. time. So uh, so thanks for sharing that. So what? Like always, this is a really fast hour. There's so many things that I'd love to talk to you about, and and so little time. And I think where I'd like to start is you have started to share now, and, and I think part of the beginning of this was the book that you wrote, Gridiron Genius, but you've come up with a really intriguing framework for organizational success. And, and it's not just a football framework. That, that's the thing about this is there's so much that we can learn in business. And you've broken it down into four categories. And so the, the first category was the ownership level, the second category being the, the GM and coach role, the third area really focused on talent acquisition. And the final fourth area focused on talent development. So I'm wondering if you can sort of walk us through at a high level the framework and, and, and let's start at the ownership piece. And I know the, the ownership piece, Michael, you've got in there, common sense, creating stability, believing in people, pride in the company, and then caring more than anyone. But do you want to elaborate on the, what the ownership role really sort of looks like in a winning organization? Yeah, you know, everybody asks me all the time, uh, how do we get culture? How do we build culture? Because my book basically is a book about culture disguised as a football book. And people think culture is something that you call pest control to come in and spray, and we have culture, right? They just come on over, we're going to spray the building, we got a good culture. And culture starts and ends with the owner. The owner must declare what he wants his organization to be. When Steve Jobs went back to Apple the second time, before he started to think different campaign, he didn't recognize the company. He didn't know who they were. He didn't understand it. They did not have a culture because when Jobs founded the company, it was culture-based through him. When he left the company, it became about how many gigabytes, how, many, how big the screens are, how, how the word process, the processing power. It wasn't about what his vision was for the company. So when I talk about owners you know, in the NFL, I'm really talking about any business. Somebody that runs the company has to declare who we're going to be, right? Who are we? If when Bill Belichick walked into the Cleveland Browns building in 1991, he handed me a piece of paper that I have in my office here today. And he said, and that paper really was what the Cleveland Browns were going to be, who we were, what we were about, and how we were going to pursue. Because the owner, Art Modell, wasn't willing to give us that. He didn't really know. He just wanted to win. You know, I want to win. I want to make money. You know, th those are great. Those are great. You know, and then we have the great, you know, the mission statements, which really don't mean anything if you don't know who the hell you are. You know, how can you have a mission statement if you don't know what you are about? And, yeah. you know, and so the FBI, when they look for in America here, when the FBI looks for serial killers, they just don't go through the phone book, right? They profile what they're looking for. Well, companies with culture have a profile. And so what I wrote here is, Owners have to give you that culture. You know, who do we want to be? And then that's common sense. That's the number one ingredient to an owner. Number two is create stability. You can't be a guy who flies off the handle. When I worked for Art Modell, you know, we used to have a joke that if we made this field goal, everybody will get 10-year contract extensions. If we miss it, everybody's fired. Like, you, you can't have that dichotomy of difference. And then you got to believe in people. you got to be able to define their roles and believe in it. And then I think this is really important. I think it's really, really important. There has to be pride within the company. Walsh used to say all the time, Marines fighting for Marines. You know, we live in an age where people change uniforms every year, Oregon, you know, but there has to be a sense of pride at any company. Who are the best employees? Pictures should be on the wall. There should be some sense of pride of people that have gone before you. If you go to San Francisco and you wear jersey number 42, you better know who the hell Ronnie Lott was who wore that jersey. If you play in New England, you need to know some 33 was Kevin Falk. And why do you wear that number? 
56 was Andre Tippett. Why do you wear that number? You know, John Hanna's number. There has to be a per preserve the pride of the company. You know, we have a generation that wants to forget the past, but yet we as leaders have to remember that. Marines fight for Marines. And then this is really the most important. You got to care more than anybody. And caring doesn't mean you fire people. Caring means you're willing to listen. Caring means you're willing to listen. You're willing to take in information and not think you have all the answers. People think caring is you make radical decisions. Caring is listening. Yeah. And, and a lot of the, uh, the size of businesses that we interact with, the owner and the head coach general manager roles are oftentimes, those are hats worn by the same people. And so kind of knowing when to wear which hat is important. But in, in the football sense, Michael, I'm interested, like what, are, what would be some of the actual behaviors that you would observe a Robert Kraft, as an example, demonstrating on a daily basis? Well, I think what Kraft did to me, and I think this should get him in the Hall of Fame alone, I, I think what Robert Kraft did was he walked into a National Football League and he heard from a lot of different people on how to run a team. And, and, and he kept, and, and one of the, and his instincts were that he should keep Belichick. But the, the media and the pressure from outside forces, it wasn't popular in 1997, 98 to like Belichick. It wasn't a popular thing because the press from Cleveland was so bad the, the move of the team, that he wasn't popular. When I wrote this, when I wrote a book for the Rams in 1996 and recommended that they hire Belichick, the guy laughed at me, you know, and, and, and I have documentation of the book, so I'm not talking like I, I'm, I'm not remembering when here. So yes. what, what Kraft did was he hired Pete Carroll, who was a fine coach, went to a playoff one year, but then Kraft trusted his instincts yeah. and he used common sense. And he went back and said, you know, Belichick was the guy I wanted to hire two years ago. Nobody wanted me to do it. And then when he traded draft picks for him, do you realize people laughed at it? You know, you go back and read the New York Daily News and the New York Post, they laughed at it. The Jets robbed them, you know. And so I think Kraft exercised those five areas. But most importantly, he realized that, that his instincts were more important than what people told him. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's good. And, and to, to go back to your earlier point, Michael, for those that aren't, haven't read it yet, uh, Michael does a wonderful job in Gridiron Genius of, of laying out basically that uh, he was, he was uh, hired as a, as a consultant to the Rams and, and he put together this remarkable evaluation criteria on who they should hire as their next head coach. Belichick's the recommendation. They didn't listen to it and all you know, the rest, as they say, is history. Yeah, and, and that book, in all candor, and not to blow smoke up Tom, but that book was basically Tom Peters driven. That yeah. book was basically Tom Peters driven because remember, Tom didn't talk about this on the last pot, on the last uh, Unleashed. I listened to it, but Tom Tom says, you know, managers do things right, leaders do the right thing. Yeah, and and sometimes we confuse managers and leaders. Right. You know, we evaluate a manager who's in a leadership position that, yeah. and we make the mistake. And so that book was about what is leadership, which leads me to the next part of what we were talking about. Leaders are different than managers. Yeah. Yeah. So let's move into the head coach general manager piece now, uh, Michael. And there's there's five areas here that you talk about. So who do we intend to be the philosophy of the team, the four pillars of creating culture? how to teach, develop the culture, and then how employees impact the culture. So elaborate on what those mean for us. Well, I think, you know, once again, we're back to Steve Jobs. Who are we? What do we want to be? Yeah. You know, what's going to be our philosophy, you know? And I don't want to hear that we want to, our, we want to win a championship. That, you know, Walsh used to say the score takes care of itself. Let's develop the standard of excellence. And then I think leadership is really about four areas. And I think that, and again, this is very very Peter's driven, but the four areas of leadership that really impact the culture. And it starts with management of attention, right? So what is management of attention? Management of attention means you have a plan. You have a plan here. Yeah. I'm coming in to run this company. And here is the plan that I have to achieve success based on the philosophy and the direction of the company. Here's our plan. You know, that's really, it's written down, it's detailed. You want to become a head coach in the NFL. Who are you? Who do you want to be? You want to be a head coach of a high school basketball team. What kind of basketball team do you want? You know, do you want to have a small team, a fat team, a skinny team? What do you want to be? You, what do you intend to be? That's the most important. And then the second area is called management of meaning, which means you explain the plan. 
can you explain what we're talking about? You know, can you, can I explain it succinctly enough with enough detail where I can communicate it with you? And some people use metaphors, some people use humor, however you do it. You know, there's got to be a way to where you capture people's attention. They see, they hear the plan and they, I got it. I yeah. got it. And then command of self, which is the most critical. And this is where most coaches and leaders fall apart is they're not willing to be honest with themselves. There's not enough self-evaluation. They think they got it. They're not willing to spend time on the things that they need to improve on. And then the other area is called command of trust, which means the people that work for me trust me to be what's in the best interest. And this is where Belichick is brilliant. The players trust Belichick. In my next book, I'm going to talk about the secret to all victory lies in the organization of the non-obvious. And yeah. how do people see the non-obvious? And this one play that I talked about in Gridiron Genius has more tenets to it than any play. Belichick decides with 24 seconds left to go in the game not to call timeout. He also decides to run a defense that they'd never run before all year long. He also decides to take his best player off the field of Devin McCourty to put a free agent on the field who was – 10 months earlier from West Alabama and couldn't even get a tryout named Malcolm Butler. Now, how do you do all that and still have a culture? You know, how do you do that? The players trust you. There's immense trust that Bill is going to do what's right for the team. So when Bill makes a decision, everybody trusts it to not have an agenda. There's so many form of bias that we have in our, in our, in our arsenal that we hide behind to make decisions. And each one of those decisions allows players to lack trust, to build, to take away our trust. You know, when Bill stands in front of the team and says, we're only going to keep the players that help the team. If a guy's drafted in the second round, he doesn't help the team, we'll cut him. If a guy's a free agent, we'll keep him. There's a trust level there. And, and, and when we're going to see in sports as we come back is how coaches, and I wrote about this for the Daily Coach today, how do coaches re-engage trust? How do you as leaders re-engage the trust of the people you're leading when you get back into the office, when we stop being in separate places and now I've got to trust you, you've got to trust me. It's a serious issue, but it starts with what's the plan? If the plan is we want to do this, then you have to be trustworthy enough to adhere to the plan. And Belichick's plan is, look, I'm not doing social media. I'm not going to do an advertisement. I'm not going to, I'm not going to make my, I'm going to put the team first. So that's why he doesn't do commercials. That's why you don't see him doing things that other coaches do because everything comes back to trust. Yeah. In the, there's a couple things that you've hit on there, Michael, in the, uh, the command of self piece, I'm curious. So you, you, you achieve a certain level of success. You sort of climb the proverbial mountain. How do you stay open to criticism and feedback? And how do you, um, how do you ensure that you're in an environment where it's, you can have a bit more command of self in that regard? Well, I, I think the number one thing, I think Ryan Holiday hit the nail on the head when he wrote Ego is the Enemy. And, and we spent a lot of time together. And ego is the killer of any profession that's covered by the media because somebody always wants credit, right? It's me, me, me. I want credit, right? And so Ryan really nails this. And he says, basically, whatever level you're at, you have to work on your ego every single day. So you have to find somebody that's above you and aspire to be that person. Then you've got to find somebody who's equal to you and have a relationship with that person. And then you have to find somebody who's less than you, who's lower level than you, who where you were at one time, and then have a relationship with that person. That keeps your ego in balance. You always have to constantly think about how do I take away my ego from a decision? It's a hard thing to do. Belichick has done it marvelously, but you know, Greg Popovich can do it. It's I'm removing my ego from the equation. If I'm going to get killed in the press because we drafted this guy and he's no good, I don't care. I build trust with players, you know, so you must really work on your ego. And if you believe when they say something positive, why do you don't believe when they say something negative? Yeah, that's great advice. And I think it's, it's, it's fairly common you know, be, to be humble and, and, uh, and, and quiet your ego and things like that. But the actual methodology to do it is not necessarily understood. So that's great advice. And, and, and I, I also think too, Jeff, I think yeah. you have to show people that you work for that you're willing to do the work. 
One yeah. of the things I learned from Al Davis was, you know, we didn't have a big staff. So, you know, you had to do the work. I couldn't hand a secretary a piece of paper and say, hey, could you type this up for me? I had to do it. Yeah. You know, I, I couldn't sit in the cozy office and tell somebody to go get me coffee or somebody answer my phone. I think it keeps you humble and grounded. Yeah. I, I think sometimes when we get away from doing the work, our egos run away with ourselves. Yeah. You know, I, I, had a, I had an assumption that, that success would make it easier to build trust, but it might not be the case. So, and, and what I'm wondering about, Michael, is on two sides of it. So there's, there's, a, there's a coach that's trying to, to, to sort of prove their mettle and uh, they don't have the track record of success. So how does, how does a new entry-level coach or leader build trust quickly versus a, compare that and contrast that with, with building trust for an established coach? Well, I think what you got to really do is you're new in a program, you've got to walk in there and truly sell your plan. But you also, I think this is a huge mistake people make. Everybody that takes over as a leadership position comes in with this, you know, we've popularized this in America, the first hundred days of a president, the first hundred days you're in office. Everybody wants to know what are you going to do when you get there? That's, everybody can't wait. And, what, and that question is ego driven. What are you going to do when you get there? Well, the answer really is simply this. How do I know what I'm going to do? I don't know what I just got walked into. If I think I'm the greatest leader of all time, and that's why they hired me, I'm going to fail. Because if I don't understand what happened before I got there and what the problems were before I arrived, I'm going to make them all over again. So I say this. You spend the first 100 days looking backwards. Don't look forwards. Find out why you're in the job. Don't pat yourself on the back. Don't think it's because you're so great. Realize, walk in the person's shoes, the man or woman that you followed. Walk in their shoes and understand what they were up against. And then once you figure that out, now you have a plan of attack to handle that. That doesn't mean you don't come in with your messaging, you don't come in with what you wanna be, but you gotta dig deep into understanding how it failed, what went wrong, or else you're gonna be doomed. You know, everybody can't wait for that press conference. Oh, coach, what are you going to do? How are you going to handle this? You know, you know, I, I tell the story all the time. I mean, Matt Patricia took over the Detroit Lions. They were nine and seven. He walked in with a tear down mentality. You know, instead of walking in with a look, guys, I'm here to help us win games 10, 11 and 12. He took over for a very popular coach. Jim Caldwell was a very popular. Everybody loves Jim Caldwell. But he came in with this, I am going to scorched earth, tear it down, rebuild. Well, he needed to rebuild, but he needed to do it in a different way, a diplomatic way. Because what he did is alienate everybody. You've got to be able to get people that work within the building you're taking over to buy into your culture. You've got to sell that culture to them. If you keep bringing people in, new people to come in to sell your culture, no one's going to listen to you. Yeah. Yeah, Michael, you've said that, that Belichick's, one of his primary roles is to build, maintain, and grow culture. And, and, I, and I get that. But I, the thing I'm most curious about is what are some of the things he does to actually instill that, grow it, maintain it? What would we see Belichick doing on a daily basis? He'd be interacting with the players and reminding them of the culture. So you walk into the building, there's a sign that says, do your job. So that's easy said, right? Everybody thinks they know what their job is, right? but not really everybody understands what their job is. Nobody has a full conversation about what their job is and how they're being evaluated, but he does. You know, just do your job, right? Put the team first, speak for yourself and be attentive. And Belichick's job is to make sure that everybody follows those four rules. So somebody shows up and he's, you know, falls asleep in the meeting or somebody does something that's not conducive, his job is to enforce those four areas, right? His job is to make sure that the level of excellence is always met every single day. And that takes competitive stamina. That takes competitive stamina because it's, we always want to take the path of least resistance. You know, we always want to do, and I tell this story all the time, and it's so true that when Lucille Ball in the I Love Lucy show, she lost her wedding ring in her bedroom. And the ring slips off her finger and she drops to the floor and she immediately looks for it. So, you know, she can't find it. A couple scenes later, she's in the living room. Ricky comes in the front door, sees his wife on the floor, says, Lucy, what are you doing? She said, I lost my wedding ring. And he says, oh, that's horrible. Where'd you lose it? She said, I lost it in the bedroom. And he says, you lost it in the bedroom. Why are you looking in the living room? She says, well, because the light's much better out here. 
right? That's what happens to all of us. We always want to make decisions based on where the light's the brightest, yeah. right? And, and sometimes as the leader of the culture, you're going to have to tackle some stuff. And especially in light of how the media might treat you, you've got to be very, you, you've got to be willing to be the bad guy. You've got to be willing to be the bad guy. You've got to be willing to say to some player, that ain't good enough. Yeah. Or that, some employee, that's not good enough. Michael, I want to keep moving through the framework here because I've got a whole bunch of other questions I want to get to with you. Let's move on now to the talent acquisition piece. And you've broken it down into four areas. So de defining each job really specifically, scouting from the inside out, elimin uh, elimination is more important than finding, and then uh, the, the need to train employees rather than retrain them. Right. All right. Well, I mean, I think I hit that you must have, everybody's job has to be detailed de defined. Walsh used to walk around the building and we would have meetings once a month where he would bring out this giant notebook and he would go over every one of your jobs. Here's what I expect from you. Here's what I want from you. Here's what we need to improve on. Here's what we have to get better at. This is your job. This is where your performance is going to be evaluated. And understand this, the more I give you to do, the better you do it, the more I'll give you. It's a reward system. If you do a good job, you'll get more work. If you do a bad job, you'll get less work. And before long, you won't be here. So it's got to know what your job is. Scouting inside out is really, it goes back to the owner. Who are we? Who are we? Right? When you watch a game, people will say, well, that guy's perfect for the Patriot. That's a Patriot player. Well, that means because they've defined who they are. And how do you define who you are? How do you scout players if you don't know who you are? So the, the thing I talk about, elimination. If you want to hire somebody in your company, you need to write down what you want in that position, right? I want, some, like for us, when we hired people at the Cleveland, when we building the staff, we wanted people that had some form of a, ideally would be a military background. We wanted somebody that had Jesuit training. Why Jesuit training? Because they were good writers. The Jesuits teach how to write, right? They teach you how to write. One of the reasons I wanted my son to go to a Jesuit school is because it would help him with writing. You know, my other son didn't listen to me. He went to another school, but that's, that's, a, that's a whole family issue. But anyway, so, you know, uh, we wanted somebody with that background, somebody who was self-motivated, somebody who's self -started. So you write down the criteria of what you're looking for. Then you go search the people that fit the criteria. It isn't, the criteria isn't, I want the smartest guy in the building. You know, Peter says this all the time. He wants to hire C students. He doesn't want to hire A students. He wants somebody that has a hole in their resume because they're thinkers. Well, define what you want and then go hire what you want. I want, this is what I'm looking for. I'm looking for people with this type of background. I want somebody who's been experienced and, and, and it's vast and over the landscape and they're out there. All you have to do is go look for it. And, and, and another Peter's thing is, is look, we've tried this before. To try to get somebody to change their mind, he has one of the great quotes of all time by Eric Shininsky of the United States Army. It says, if you don't like change, you're gonna like irrelevance even less, right? You can't change people, it's very challenging. But you can reach, you can train people. We found that in the NFL. People were set in their ways, they won't change. Okay, no problem, no problem. But then we became, then this is the line we started to use. The guy will never fit in the program. He'll never fit in the program. So we started training people. We took young people that fit the criteria we were looking for, and then we started to train. Where does finding a diamond in the rough as an example? So uh, are there some tricks or some tools that have worked for you in the past to say, geez, this, this player is, is he's under the radar, but there's something about, because you've been named David Andrews as an example. How do we find Dave, uh, how do we find David Andrews and more diamonds in the rough? Well, I think it's, it goes to this past performance predicts future achievement. Past performance predicts future achievement. David Andrews is exactly what we described in 1991. So we went through, we studied what made a great offensive lineman. Yeah. And the one thing that Walsh used to say all the time is offensive linemen have to play a lot of games in college. If they play one year in college, they may play pro football, but they're lacking. So we had a fine guy. So David Andrews, four-year starter at Georgia, three-year starter in high school, the smartest guy on the team, the team captain right? Everything he did in his life, he was successful. But yet he was too small, didn't run a good enough 40 time, but yet he was so good that he played in the Southeast Conference. 
And Walsh used to say all the time, if he's good enough to play for them at that level, he'll be good enough to play for us at our level. Don't, you know, and what happens is we tend to project, right? So there's, when you're scouting, there's four types of scouts and this applies to people in business as well. So when you're looking for talent, right, you, you're, you're ahead of talent acquisition in any company, you've got to define the person with four P's. So the, the one P is poor. The guy can't find talent no matter what, right? That's a poor scout. Then you have the guy who picks on people, right? You know, I like Jeff, but he always wears a blue shirt. He always wears a blue, you know, he picks on one thing, right? You know, okay, so he's, then the, the other one is the production scout. Well, you know, the guy was in five games. He made 16 tackles. The guy you want to hire is the projection scout. Here's where the guy is today. Here's how I project him to the future. And, and if you can project people, you're a really good scout. And I think that's what you have to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, well said. And, and what about intuition? Uh, I, I got to trust my gut on this one. There's something about that player. I, I often think that intuition is confused for actual pattern recognition because you're so well-versed in what you do. Well, how do you feel about intuition? Well, I, I, want, I want more than just, I think he's a good player. I want to go back and study, like for example, Drew Brees. People say Drew Brees, why was he a good player? Well, when he was in high school, he was a world-class tennis player. People don't realize this. He was playing, I don't know if it was Roger Federer or Andy Roddick. I'm not sure, but it was one of those guys that was in Texas at the time. He was playing, they were competing against one one against each other as the championship in tennis. I want to hang on something that the guy's really good at. I want to know the guy is good at something Mm -hmm. that I can sell on. This guy was, and I don't want it to be, he was all state and five-star because I could care less. Because when you hear five-star, you know, here's what you don't want to do. You don't want somebody to come tell you this guy's great. Why? Because your bias begins immediately with he's great. So your mind is, oh, I've got this guy's great. I, I love him. That's what happens with college recruiting. This guy's a five-star. Oh, so he must be a great player. So what Belichick does, because there's so much of that rhetoric out there, he reverse engineers it. He looks at everybody as being bad. This guy's no good. How can he be any good? And makes him convince him that he is good. Gotcha. That, that is so applicable to the business environment, Michael. Uh, and I, I've been guilty myself. I'll, after an interview, I'll, t- I'll start to talk about, you know, she's got so much upside. Uh, she's going to be great for us, or she's got the potential to be great for us. And uh, that'll totally change, I think, the way that we think about identifying talent and how we evaluate it and talk about it. Yeah, I think the other mistake we make is, is we really confuse competitiveness for work habits. And we confuse work habits for competitiveness. Explain. Okay. So what happens is sometimes you'll get a guy, woman, male, female, doesn't matter, that works really hard. But when you really need something in a competitive environment, melts. Just can't meet the challenge. But because they work so hard, you're confused. Made a bit of, you say, well, you rationalize. It was a bad day. Wasn't very good, you know. But then you find somebody who maybe doesn't work as hard, but when the competition is on the line, is at its best. Yeah. Okay. So what happens is you think instinctively that worker, that hard worker, I'll get him to change. I, I'm ignoring the guy who won't work hard or the girl who won't work hard, right? It's wrong. The person who works hard that can't compete, you can't keep them in the company. They're going to, they're going to disappoint you every single time. Yeah. But the person that lacks work habits, but competes, you can change work habits. You can't change competitiveness. Yeah. You can't change it. When your mama lifts you from the crib, you're either competitive or you're not, right? You can change people's work habits because sometimes people don't understand what it is to work hard. They don't really know. They don't even understand the first bit of it. Yeah. Yeah. I used to run into that in the, in the hockey business a lot where we'd have a goaltender that'd be the hardest working player on the team, but in the last minute of a game, couldn't make the big save. So uh, I can relate to that for sure. Michael, I want to move a a bit faster through the talent development section. And and I want to get on to some more leadership questions I have for you. But in the talent development piece, which is the fourth part of the framework, and this whole framework is going to be available in the show notes afterwards. Uh, But there's six areas that you talk about in talent development. So making players better, the difference between good players and everybody else, False duality, that is something I'm really intrigued by, the, uh, the elimination of bias, the need for loyalty, but not devotion, and then giving people a purpose. 
All right, so let's start with false duality. So you, everybody who's in a business, you know, you're in a decision-making element that people always come to you with two, two factors. You know, we're going to buy this company, we should do A or B. You know, we're going to do this thing, we should do A or B. The really good leaders say, no, no. Somebody bring me what C, D, and E look like. It's never A or B. It's never A or B. There's always, if we dig deeper and we find the non-obvious, and this is essentially what my next book's about. If we find the non-obvious, we will find C, D, and E. Yeah. You know, when, when Walt Disney was told in 1937, they couldn't make Snow White because the animators could not make Snow White have facial, uh, have any emotion, okay? She couldn't have any emotion. That was they could do it for for miniature characters. They couldn't do it for adult characters. So Walt, what did Walt Disney do? A or B? We can't we can't run it, or we she'll have none. Okay. So Walt found C, D, E, and F. He said, "Why don't we make the dwarfs love Snow White, and then America will love Snow White because they love the dwarfs." Follow me. So there's the non-obvious that always is in the decision making, and that's false duality. And we talked about bias quite a bit. Yeah. Loyalty and devotion for me is real simple. There was a guy that used to, uh, that, was, that was a manager for Muhammad Ali, right? And his name was Bundy Brown. And you would always see Muhammad Ali and at any press conference and Bundy was back. You the champ, you the champ, you the champ. If Muhammad didn't work out one day, Bundy Brown would tell him he's the greatest. That he was devoted to Muhammad. He's never loyal to Muhammad. Loyalty means you tell me the truth. Devoted means you'll lie to me. I don't want devoted people. I don't need devoted people. I need loyal people. Define loyalty for the people. You have to tell me the truth. You're not going to get fired for telling the truth. Yeah. There's a difference between loyalty and devotion. And I think at the end of the day, Springsteen has a song, and I write about it, I tweet about it every day. It's reason to believe. you got to give people a purpose. MacArthur's creed of youth is about if we don't wake up with a purpose in the morning, we're not going to have a good day. Yeah. And I, I think that that is debilitating organizations, uh, whether it's sports or business every single day. I think there's a real absence of people that tell each other the truth and there's a whole, we could debate the reasons for it and on another show, but, but, uh, I think you hit a very, very important topic right there, Michael. Um, okay, I want to move on to some other leadership questions now, and, and they are related to the framework, but but not not as uh, succinctly as some of the other ones were. And I've I've heard you talk about change a lot, Michael, and you, you say that oftentimes change can feel like you're going down the wrong path. I'd love it if you could elaborate on what you mean by that. Well, I think we want comfort, right? We want something we know, and it's always challenging when we go down a path. It's like writing your first paragraph, right? You're going down this road. You don't know really what you're going to write. And it, it's uncomfortable. It, it doesn't sound right. It doesn't feel right. But by the fourth, fifth, sixth draft of what you've written, you've kind of get comfortable with it. And there's a sense of that in everything we do. We've got to be willing to try new things or we're never going to be able to grow this company. We can't, we have to have a growth mindset. And once you take away, you're not going to get fired for mistakes. Once you take that out of the equation, you'll see people's growth mindset go on. Now, we can't make stupid mistakes, yeah. but we need to have really good ideas and we need to try them. And we can't be scared of that. And I think what we've learned from the coronavirus is simply, look, we can function out of, out of our homes. We can have Zoom calls. We, can, we would not be having this conversation today. You would not have had Tom Peters last week, two weeks ago, whenever, if it wasn't for this changing times. You know, so we, we have to be adaptable to change and understand it. And I'm not saying we should change every day, you know, because, you know, when you go to the greatest restaurant in the world, the French Laundry, they don't change every day, but they modify to what they do. Yeah. If you see something you like, you better test it. But the Barefoot Contessa is the, sells more cookbooks than anybody in the world. Okay. She's not even a professionally trained chef. She bought the Barefoot Contessa. She read an ad in the, in the New York Times when she was working for the Carter White House. Uh, Ina Gardner, her name is. She was working for the uh, White House. And she saw an ad in the paper saying, there's a bakery in the Hamptons for sale. It's called Barefoot Contessa. Her, she said, I would love to do that. So she bought it. 
She opened up the bakery and became really successful. She didn't ever expect she was going to be on food television. But why are her cookbooks so good? Because every recipe she puts in the cookbook, she tests over and over and over again. So when you get a new idea, you just can't implement it. You got to test it. You got to put it in. People steal ideas left and right. And then when they fall apart, they say, what happened? Nobody knows. Nobody can remember. That's because they're not testing the ideas. Gotcha. And related to that, this sort of this theme of constant reinvention and and in the pandemic in particular, I mean, companies have have had to have had to change how they operate. And in some cases on a daily basis and, and even making plans that are obsolete by the time the plan is done. And the question, Michael, that I have is how do you stay motivated and keep reinventing yourself versus just getting burned out? Well, I think that competitive stamina, I think you've got to read. I, I think reading is the best thing. And I think you have to read different things. I think you have, to, like, I, I've been, you know, I read a lot of different things that, that are unrelated to foot. I don't read anything about football. I think football books are boring. And so. Not yours. Uh, huh? No, I appreciate Mine's a culture book disguised as a football. But I, I think you have to read. And I think you have to find passion and how you can apply what you're reading to something mm-hmm. you know like I, I i was reading i've read a lot about david crosby and he talks about things in his book that i can apply to my life you know and i think that you know it, it's true it, you know you have to read different things to be adaptable to change it's like you got to read to write better i think you have to read to be able to w- willing to change you have to turn on that curiosity button in your brain mm-hmm Michael, you also have said that great leaders, they teach people how to think, not tell them how to think. How do, how do you effectively teach people how to think? Well, I, I, have you ever watched the, I think this is one of the greatest inventions I've ever seen. RCA has the RC, RSA animated has this slide where they basically, you ever see the UPS whiteboard where they draw stuff? Yeah. So they took Sir Kenneth Robinson and his talk about educational systems and how most of us here in America have been educated through the, uh, the factory, through the industrial revolution. You know, we go from, we're all by age, we're all by third grade goes to fourth grade. And we're basically taught what to think. We're not taught how to think, yeah. you know, people tell us what to think and the way you have to change your learning habits. How do you become smarter? is you've got to become a person that, that is willing to learn, not, not be taught. You've got to learn things. You've got to be willing to accept that. And, and, and I think you do it all the time. And, and we, not what somebody tells us. Al Davis was the king of this, right? He would constantly remind me of, of when you read a newspaper article, what was the agenda of the person writing the column? And, and there's a great story by... Uh, 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 in, 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 uh, I think it's in one of Robert Caro's books, but Lyndon Johnson's in the White House one morning and he calls Ben Bradley at home, the, the editor of the Washington Post. And he tells Ben Bradley, he says, look, on page three of the Post today, the, the, the unnamed source in that column, that typical writer's main source was, uh, was in the hospital last night. So he couldn't have been the source. Who was the source? And then on page seven, this other writer was out of this other source that he typically uses was out of the country. Lyndon Johnson would literally sit there with the Washington post and circle who the sources were in the column because he wanted to know how to control the narrative. Right? Yeah. Well, that's the same thing. Who's teaching us. You better know what you're learning. Yeah. And you got to apply that. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. That's really, really great insight. Okay. I'm going to switch us uh, into what I call rapid fire now, Michael. So you basically have 10 seconds to answer these following the following questions. Okay. Okay. <laughs> what was the team you're, you're most proud of that didn't win? The 2015 Patriots. Uh, oh, me too. Yeah. I mean, I thought we were really a good team. We should have won. Uh, we, we ran out of gas at the end of the year. Yeah. I, I, and I'm, get, I'm, breaking the, I'm violating the laws of uh, rapid fire. Was there any rethinking on the strategy of, of the game plans? Because there was a lot of, there was some different game planning at the end of that season that led to losing home field advantage potentially. Yeah, I think, you know, I think we, 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 um, well, certainly when you, one thing about Belichick that I think, and this will violate the 10 second rule is if you don't do an autopsy on, on why you win and why you lose, you really make a big mistake. 
And I think when we look back, we were just, we ran out of gas. We were just not healthy enough to win. Yeah. Yeah. And then the Panthers handed over the uh, Super Bowl, basically. Uh, what's the best team you were part? Uh, what's, what's the, uh, the best team you were part of that didn't win? So it might be different. The best team I was a part of that didn't win. I would say the Cleveland Browns of 94, we were 11 and five. We just couldn't beat the Steelers. Yeah. Where does drive come from and why do some players persevere when others quit? Oh, that's, I think it comes from, it, it comes from their parents. It comes from their DNA. It comes from their, their upbringing. When that, that old Catholic school terminology, stick to itiveness, when, when we don't, when we let people stop doing things and they don't fight through, you know, mental toughness is a muscle. And if you don't work the muscle, it's going to be weak. Why does top talent underachieve? Because they're told they're top talent and they think they can pass for it. They think they can do it. They think they can get by with doing less because they always have. They don't realize that they're not competing. You know, when you get on a Peloton, you know, you don't know who you're really competing against. There's 5,000 people that are doing the same thing you're doing. You know, when you're a top athlete in high school, you don't know there's 5,000 other top athletes. You think you can do it all the time. Yeah. How do you create a positive environment when everyone is out to maximize their paycheck? You've got to, you've got to convince people that you're going to, that the bigger goal is greater than the check. You've got to convince, that's the job of the leader. It, how do you, how does the dream team with all those superstars become the dream team? Because the goal is to win. You've got to be able to convince that out we're going to win and I'm going to show you how we're going to win. Yeah. Are the Patriots going to have as tough a first season without Brady as I think, as, as I think they will. I've got them going to eight and eight. I don't think they will. I think that, you know, I think if you really understand why they won and why they lost last year, I think they need to improve. Yeah, the toughness of schedule is the thing that's influencing my opinion. Uh, what surprised you about working with Brady the most? Well, I think, you know, Tom, Tom, Tom's view of himself. Tom sees himself as an overachiever. Tom sees himself as a guy with very little talent that has to work extra hard to be able to, to achieve at the highest level. And so Tom never cuts a corner. Tom has incredible stick to And Tom really taught me about competitive stamina. Oh, that's interesting. What's the biggest misconception about Bill Belichick? He's the greatest friend you could ever have. Uh, he's the most loyal person. He's a tremendous friend. He's a, and more than anything, he's the most giving person I've ever met. Yeah, excellent. All right, that ends rapid fire. I, I, I wanna talk a bit about you now, Michael. And I, I'm as fascinated about you and your story as anybody that you wrote about. And you probably don't uh, view yourself that way. So you're, you're very much uh, in pra you know, practicing the things of, and attributes of the people that you admire the most. I want to talk about your latest venture. So the Daily Coach with George Raveling. And I have to admit, when, uh, when that first came out, I, 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 was, I, didn't, I had no idea how the two of you would have been on a collision course, but I guess I shouldn't be surprised. So how did that come to be? And can you talk a little bit about the Larry David connection to the daily coach? So coach Rav and I have, have been, you know, uh, we, when I worked at CBS sports one year, there was a guy named John Coleman'sberger who was a savant. He truly was the rain man. He could remember everything. I mean, he literally would correct newspapers when they're mistakes and, and, JK, we called him, he quite could never get his life in order, but he was brilliant, just brilliant, an incredibly hard worker. And Rav worked at CBS for a while too. So when I was there, JK would say, you know, you and Rav should be friends. You two are a lot alike. And through, through that, eventually we crossed paths, but never. And then when I moved to Los Angeles to write the book, uh, Coach Rav lives in Los Angeles. So he, he used to love to have a breakfast meeting every day, a lunch meeting every day, and a dinner meeting. He had three of them every day, five days, six days a week. And, uh, and I just happened to get on that schedule, and that's how we became friends. And then the idea came from, look, if Steve Jobs needs a coach, if you've read The Trillion Dollar Coach, yeah. if Steve Jobs needs a coach, then Michael Lombardi sure as hell needs a coach, right? Yeah. So that's how the idea came. And then the, the way things are written – is from Larry David. So when I was in Los Angeles and I was at a dinner, it was in a restaurant and there was a bunch of people that, that I was working with were at the table and Larry David comes over to the table and says, uh, he meets everybody. And, you know, of course I'm a, I'm an expatriate. So he's got this antagonistic view of me because he's a jet fan. <laughs> and he's like, you know, 
you guys make it so hard. I, I could call plays. And I'm like, I don't think you could, Larry. I could call plays. It's not that hard. I mean, really, how hard could it be? So I think football is a little bit like chess on grass. He's, I said, well, then if you think you can call plays, I could write comedy. And he says, you could write comedy. And I said, no, I could never write comedy. He said, yeah, you could. I said, I'll tell you how we wrote Seinfeld. He said, we had a team of 16 writers. And all we'd asked them to do was to write one line. Kramer finds the Merv Griffin set. George, you know, uh, George has two personalities. Coffee shop George, you know, Kramer eats fried chicken. You know, Jerry can't stop singing a song. Whatever it was, just one line. And then he and, he and, he and Seinfeld would write what it was. Yeah. And so the Daily Coaches, I'll read a quote by somebody. And that springs something onto me. Like today we had this conversation, which I don't think I've ever written. You asked me about how, how, this, how you can learn and not think you're being taught, taught something. I, I need to write that for the daily coach. And it, so it's just that one line. And then all of a sudden, Oh, I got to write that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that is so cool to get that backstory. And, and again, for those folks tuning in today that, don't know who George Raveling is, you need to. Uh, he has a remarkable story, a remarkable human being. He was working security in DC when Martin Luther King delivered his I Have a Dream speech. And as, a, and as MLK walks off the stage, he hands his handwritten notes of the speech to George and George has those in his possession to this day. Remarkable, remarkable story. Michael, the next question is you're so busy. How do you organize your week and how do you keep a strong mindset despite the busyness of your life? Well, I, I think you got to have a routine. I'm a routine person. And yeah. the hardest thing for me was to understand that I was no longer working in the NFL, that I was a writer. And that took me a year to transition from that because my instincts were to start breaking down teams, studying tape. And I'm like, look, if I don't write every day, I'm not going to be a writer. So yes. I changed what I did. I got more into journaling. I got more into you know, planning my mornings around working out, planning my mornings around writing, and then planning my afternoons around editing, and then working within time frames with football. And, you know, I, 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 again, it's a purpose, right? So I wake up, I feel really like I have a purpose. And David Crosby taught me this. This is what's really impacted me. He said that, you know, when you were a young singer-songwriter in the 70s, and you had, you know, you presented your 12 songs to a record company, those 12 songs probably took you 20 years of your life to write. They were, they were every year you had in your life. That's was that songs. Yeah. The next album is when you find out whether you have talent or not. Mm -hmm. The next album. And for me, that's the motivating. The next book is going to find out whether I have any talent or not. Yeah. Yeah. That's well said. You have, um, you have earned the trust and respect of some, incredibly successful and accomplished people, Michael, what is it about you that's enabled you to do that? I think, I, I think that that's a little broad. I, I think I've been fortunate enough to be mentored by coach Walsh. So that was a tremendous opportunity. I think the fact that, that, that knowledge is King has helped me uh, where I could come in. When I met Belichick, it changed my life because we saw things the same way. We saw the NFL the same way. And we both had curiosity attached to it. And then Al Davis was a hero for me. So I got to work around him. But I, I think we gravitate to people that we have commonalities with. I think we get comfortable with being around people that, want, that see the game the same way we do, that have the same aspirations in terms of the work ethic. You know, my father was 93 years old. He still cut hair every day until we made him stop. Uh, we, I thought he was going to Vincent Van Gogh somebody. So we had to make him stop. And, <laughs> and, uh, you know, and so I have a good, I was taught a good work ethic. Yeah. You've said that you idolized Vince Lombardi growing up and you drew a lot of inspiration from Bruce Springsteen who grew up not far from, uh, from yeah. where you grew up and, and they sort of got you started on the path, but inevitably we hit these crossroads where you could keep going or you could do something different. What's kept you going? Oh, uh, there was never, I was never turning back. You know, there was, yeah. you know, the, you know, the old burn the house. I was never going back. You know, because everybody was waiting for you to come back. You know, I grew up in a little beach town that, you know, work for the city, you know, don't, you don't even really need to go to college, wait for the summer tours to come down, get a summer job. You'll be fine. Yeah. And, and I saw this guy on TV that looked like he belonged at my family dinners. 
so I wanted to be like him. And then I heard this guy telling me to chase it, that this town was, the town was dead and you need to go out there and experience it. And the combination of the two, it's funny, you know, Lombardi's birthdays today, he's born and he's buried in Red Bank. Springsteen lives about 10 minutes from Red Bank. I mean, it's the power of, of the, the, when worlds collide and you're as a youngster, there's a great sense. And I don't know who said it, but the world gets out of the way for people that know where they want to go. Yeah. You know, and if you know where you want to go, you'll get there. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, I was interested when you worked with the Raiders that, that you enrolled yourself in writing classes. And so it brings me to my, to my I guess, my final question for you, Michael. Uh, and, and by the way, in Gridiron Genius, the recounting of the 2014 bye week leading up to the Ravens game, that's, that's the most beautiful writing that I have read in I don't know how long. Thank you. That's and nice I was I, I was I was completely enthralled and captivated and mesmerized by it. I lost a complete track of time, yeah. and uh, so and, and it's only your first book. So congratulations! It's a wonderful masterpiece. And uh, you've said though that in in your next phase of your career, from the time you know you're 61 years old next week to the time you're 83, you want those to be the best years of your life. Yeah. And it sounds like writing is going to figure prominently. But what do you really hope to accomplish in the next part of your career? What matters to you now? I think really more than anything, and I think I learned this too late in life, I think you have to really aspire to help people. I think you got to really give yourself to someone else. You can't be, you know, you can't be hunting all the time. You've got to be willing to give away your information. If people ask me for things, I give it away. I, I talk to them. I mean, I don't even block anybody on Twitter as much as I, I can't stand Twitter. You know, I think you have to be willing to give yourself. I think you get to a point in your life where, uh, Dr. Albo, who was a team doctor for the Raiders, taught me this. He said, you know, there's a part in your life where it's stages of your life you get to. And at the last stage of your life, you're either very benevolent or you're very angry. And uh, I'm going to always be benevolent. Yeah. Yeah, that's well said. And uh, you've been immensely helpful in giving to me, Michael. I want to thank you for that. And, and then even on a higher level than that, uh, the dedication that you have invested into your craft I think has helped bring joy to millions of people. And some might say it's just a game, but it's so much more than that. You know, sports and competition, it makes people aspire to be more than they thought they could be, you know, to dream, to reach. Uh, and it helps bring people together and connect us. And geez, do we ever need more of that? Uh, yeah, no doubt. More, no more doubt. than ever. So yeah. Michael, thanks for sharing uh, your story with us today. And it's just a snippet of it, but it's so useful and valuable. And and inspiring and, and, and captivating. And, and I can't thank you enough for saying yes to my invitation. I didn't even know if I was going to get a reply from you. So I, I, this is one of my favorite moments of my 44-year-old life is to spend some time with you. So thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. I wish everybody, thanks for listening. Thank you so much, Jeff. And, and uh, thanks to the viewers as well. Uh, we've been on a really, a really interesting journey with everybody over the last three months as you've tuned in every single Thursday. We only have a couple more episodes to go in season number one, and I hope you'll stay the course with us. Uh, and uh, the way to stay connected, you can email us, of course, at info at unleashedresults.com. Please, if you're not already, follow Michael on Twitter at MLombardiNFL and his daily newsletter at the daily underscore coach get that newsletter. It's in my inbox every morning. It's the first thing I read when I wake up. His podcast is the GM Shuffle. It's found everywhere podcasts are found. Very informative. And then please stick on when you, uh, when you leave the meeting today, click the leave button and then click the continue button. It's going to take you to the feedback survey for a chance to win Michael's book, The Gridiron Genius. And also, as I mentioned earlier, we have a special opportunity where you can actually apply to register for the Leaders Toolkit Workshop. It's a four-part, two-hour workshop series showing you how to get better at building cultural chemistry, culture of accountability, to run effective meetings in person and virtually, and how to give and receive feedback. And ironically, it's very aligned to many of the things that Michael talked about today from his experience in the NFL. The regular price of that course is $1,200, but we're offering it to attendees for the low price of $476. And I hope you will join us next week for episode 11, where Torontonian Jim Harris is gonna talk about adapting your company in a digital age. And if we're not adapting to a digital age right now, I'm not sure how you're surviving. So tune into that if you need some tips, no matter where you are on that spectrum. So thanks again to our special guest, Michael Lombardi. What a treat. I uh, hope to do this again with you someday and uh, be well, everybody. In the meantime, take care.